You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Hello and welcome to episode number 24 of the Cool Collaborations Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Kim Hishka, principal of the thriving public engagement company called Dialogue Partners. Kim and I have known each other for a few years, and I've been looking forward to having her on the podcast. Kim's focus is on conversation, and so today we'll explore how the orbits of collaboration and conversation overlap, as well as many of Kim's insights into public engagement and collaboration in general. Please enjoy our conversation. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Scott, for having me. You know, it's it's been a long time. You and I have known each other for, geez, what, five years, I'm going to guess now. And this we, we've talked about having this podcast conversation for since I started the podcast. And here we are already into season two. We, we are. Well, I was actually, Scott, I was doing the when did we first meet, sort of having the when, when did that happen? And I want to say that was, remember when we used to go to conferences and we saw people in places that weren't just our homes or our communities? <laughs> I think we met at a, an IEP2 conference in Victoria in 2018, 2017, something like that. Yeah, that's, that's ancient history now. I can, I can vaguely remember conferences, yes. So where are you joining from today? I am joining from my home in Sherwood Park, but lots of people don't know where that is. So Edmonton, Alberta is the closest major city. Excellent. So normally what I would do at this point is, is have you introduce yourself, but I kind of want to go in a different direction. And I'm, what I'm curious about is, a, is there a story in your experience or from your experience that would explain what you do and why you do it? Oh, Scott, there's a few of them. Now I have to pick. I might tell too many stories. I get to live in this great, amazing world of better, bolder conversations. That's the work that I'm in. And so sometimes that work sort of takes one format and then and sometimes that work actually takes a different format. So let me sort of talk about two of them. So I remember... I was uh, hosting a series of public engagement opportunities. And so there was a major Canadian municipality. They were looking at reimagining the way that they were going to host budget engagement or talking to citizens and homeowners and taxpayers about sort of what money gets spent, where do we spend it, how do we spend it, why do we spend it, what's important about it. And so we're about sort of midway through. And one of the things that we know in this work is that there's lots of times we hear from the same people regularly. We hear from people who have resources, who have education, who maybe have power and influence. And one of the big parts of this work in public engagement is for sure those voices matter. And there's a whole bunch of other voices of people who use city services who maybe don't have education or don't have the same uh, resources that we don't hear from. And so one of the things that always stood out for me when I think about this is, so we're hosting this event. I'm pretty nervous, Scott, because the mayor of this municipality is also coming. Now he's committed to me and we've, you know, we have a bit of a joke that he's going to, like, he's truly coming to listen. But there's nothing a little bit more nerve wracking than, you know, the mayor sitting right behind you and you're going to lead this session with these, you know, couple hundred people talking about 
these services and values that are important to them. But the reason why I tell the story is not actually about the mayor. What really always makes me think about this story is there was a woman came in. I'm going to call her Jeanette. I actually didn't actually ever know her name, but she came in and she had a shopping cart with her and she had a toque on and it was a little bit askew. And she came in and with the softest voice, she said, um, I'm wondering if I'm allowed in. I was like, oh, absolutely. You know, today we're here to, you know, we're having a conversation about all the different services that the city has and which of those services are really important to you. She said, okay. And so I remember she didn't really kind of quite know where to go or what to do. And so, you know, kind of walked her over and, you know, had some introductions and whatnot. And then as we kept going, she would, she wouldn't really talk with the group, but she would sort of lean over to me and say, Kim, I have a thing that I want to say. And so then she would sort of tell me. And then, and so anyways, this went on. And over time though, what was really fascinating about it is you could see that, you know, more and more and more, she had more things to say and sort of her confidence increased. And then I remember finally the last time she said to me, she's like, yeah, my realize, but there's all these really important people. Like, should I, I'm like, you know, Jeanette, or I, well, I didn't say her name. I'm like, no, like, I think you have something really valuable to say. I think it's really important. And I'd love for the rest of the group to hear your voice this time. And so I said, you know, I think we've got somebody else here who would like something, something to say. And sort of the room kind of stopped and she sort of stood up and it was the first time you could see she just like really accessed her own voice and shared with her what was most important. She had been experiencing homelessness for a long period of time. And she was a regular user of different city services and programs and had lots to say. And so the reason I tell that story is because it was one of those moments where I went, here's a person and here's a voice that too often gets missed in these public decisions or in these realms that we have about, you know, where society should go and how should we be doing it? It got, they're easy to miss if we don't take extra time and energy. And here was a moment of this really powerful moment of where all of a sudden everyone went, Hey, this person has got something to say, and they've got some experience and some thought and some knowledge behind it in an unexpected place. And so to me, that was a moment of, I want to create more opportunities for that. I want to see what other situations or um, ways that we can bring people together that we start to amplify those voices that maybe have traditionally gotten missed in the past. So I'll stop there. I don't know if I've answered your question, but there's a story for you. So if I was to maybe parse that a little bit, mm -hmm. you're speaking about a passion to engage people that comes from kind of hearing the underheard voices or hearing the ignored voices or hearing the omitted voices from the whole process. Because we often, and I've done it, been part of these types of processes too, where they're almost designed in a certain way so that those voices don't, they don't feel like they should be there and they don't feel like when they do speak that they're making any kind of difference. Yeah. And I think what bubbles up for me when I hear you say that is two things. I truly believe in all voices. I truly believe that decisions, changes, choices, whatever you want to call it, are better in many situations. And better, I mean, more long-lasting, more useful, you know, serves a wider variety of people. So, so just that idea of all voices. And that story for me really highlighted the how easy or sort of brought to light for me, oh, I may have contributed in the past to not hearing 
some voices. And so it's that moment is always a reminder to me of, have you done everything you can? Have you sort of, you know, pulled all of those levers available to you? It sounds like it would also have been challenging because you said the mayor was in the room. And so there's sort of a natural tendency to, I wouldn't say cater, but to to give more attention, I guess, to those power figures. And potentially there's the, the opportunity to contribute to the power imbalance as opposed to leveling the power imbalance out. So how do you kind of keep that sort of top of mind so that you're not uh, losing yourself in the moment, if you know what I mean? Like you're, you're inadvertently go, reverting back. I'll be honest. I, I wish there was like, do these three things and you will never contribute to, you'll never contribute to that. I, I do think though, at a bare, bare minimum, Scott, and th- this is not the solution to everything. I think awareness is a, a place that needs to get started that, um, you know, there's lots of talk in our society and our culture right now about unconscious bias. Are we aware of the things that we are contributing to or making real or the assumptions that without even questioning, we believe we constantly live in power structures and, you know, power has this play in almost every conversation setting I can possibly think of. And I'm, I'm practicing. How about that? That's the right (laughs) word. Cause I don't think you ever get it perfectly right or I certainly haven't got it perfectly right yet. I'm continuing to practice the, am I aware? What am I contributing to? How am I supporting others to, you know, behave or interact in ways that actually serve everyone who's there? I think the key word in that is practice. So this is like yoga or whatever. It's, it's never a, I have it and I've got it. It's, I'm always working on it moment to moment because like you say, it can throughout a meeting or throughout an event. I mean, your ability to do any of these things shifts in response to everything else. And so does so does everyone else's. So when you introduce yourself, say, like we're talking about these mythical conferences, when you introduce yourself in the conference, how does that story kind of come to play in your introduction? Or or is it do you revert to the this is my professional background and this is my credentials and those types of things, or I guess what I'm trying to get to Mm -hmm. is the passion that comes out from you when you talk about that story evident in your sort of day-to-day introductions. Mm, I spent a lot of time in the last couple of years really trying to get away from what I do and instead spend more time talking about what I believe or what's had impact for me. And so a lot of times when people, you know, when, when I'm, if I'm introducing myself at a conference or an event or, you know, something like that, I'll, you know, oh, so what do you do? And so a lot of times I'm like, well, you know, I'm happy to tell you that, but I'm, you know, before we go there, I'd really love to tell you about, you know, the thing that I believe. And then I follow up Scott with, there's a quote, uh, one of my mentors, a uh, long-term coaches, his name's Rick Tamlin, and he uses this saying, and he's, you know, said, Kim, feel free to like, go spread the word on this. Life is moving in the direction of the conversations that we're having. And that for me, life is moving in the direction of the conversations that we're having. And that for me just speaks to a real believer that the quality of the conversations that we're having have a direct impact on the quality of the choices that we make, the decisions that we make, and then therefore the quality of the life that we're living. And so a lot of my work, a lot of my practice has been spent in this space of like, 
what is, a, and you can't see me right now, but a good, I've got air quotes with my fingers, you know, a good conversation or a better, bolder conversation. And how might that create the positive change that we want to see in our world? It's funny. Uh, I think you've probably just hit the bingo card for anybody who who does the air quotes thing, because the, this would be the first air quotes of the second season, I think. It, ha- it pops up periodically throughout, and typically it's me that's putting it up. So I guess that last comment you made was kind of resonates with me, and I'm kind of curious how you would draw the line, maybe as you see it, between conversation or a good conversation and collaboration. How are those two pieces linked? Okay, so Scott, I'm going to try to be concise on this, but humor me here just a teeny tiny bit. I've been playing around with this idea that there's, like like anything else, there's sort of a spectrum of the way that we interact or we converse with one another. And so I think there's everything on one sort of the, you know, not so useful or actually really not useful at all side of the spectrum, which is the, I'm going to call it the divisiveness, you know, that for, against, black, white, yes, no, you're awful, I'm good. You know, we see a ton of it in social media. We see a ton of it in our just, if anybody watched the Canadian leadership debate last week, uh, you know, like we see sort of a lot of, we see a lot of, you know, we're, we're just kind of throwing stuff at one another. And then we kind of move up the scale somewhere in the middle where I would say there's like, I'll call it chit-chat and sort of, you know, kind of everyday interacting with one another. How's the weather? How's your family? What did you do last night? You know, that kind of thing. And then I think we can move up the scale a little bit more to where we actually get into different, I'll call them deeper levels of conversation. And there's what I'm going to call discussion. And Scott, you're going to tell me afterwards where you think collaboration fits into this. There's discussion, which is the you know, we're digging in, we're talking about stuff, but you know, Scott, that moment of where you're sitting at the dinner table and everyone's like, let's just agree to disagree. Like, who we don't really want to step into that. There's kind of that level of like, let's dig in, but maybe not too, too much. And then to me, there's maybe that final level or that far, far end of the scale, which is, oh, we hit that, you know, kind of spot. Like we're feeling a little uncomfortable Kate, let's lean in to that discomfort. Let's lean into that moment and see where that will take us. So I suspect that collaboration, and I'm curious to hear how you define it, fits somewhere in that upper or that far end of the one spectrum that I just described. Well, I think based on what you've described, it does fit in the top end, but it actually is everything from, I'd say, middle of the unhelpful all the way up. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, when I think about collaboration, it's typically about a group of people creatively solving a complex problem. And so there's an element of creativity, there's an element of connecting people, and there's obviously an element of essentially problem solving. And it's got to be a sort of a typical, you know, hard problem. And there may not be one solution. In fact, that solution may depend on the perspective you're coming from. And so you actually need the various levels of conversation. I'm kind of making this up on the fly, but it's sort of strikes me that you have to have all of the levels of conversation in order to understand the problem and how people are seeing it. And now there may be a movement, though, inside that from up the scale, sort of as you progress. It's interesting you say that, too. Scott. I'm just thinking, 
So I've described this, you know, I'm playing with it. So it's pretty loose right now, you know, sort of this spectrum of how we converse with one another. But actually, there would be a really interesting overlay to how do we solve problems? Like, so you talked about collaboration is often useful in solving complex problems. I suspect collaboration sort of could exist potentially in many of those different levels on the spectrum, but how effective the collaboration actually is probably is quite different and looks really different. So I th- that would be interesting to overlay the type of discussion or the type of conversing that's happening with the type of problem that is trying to be, or the method yeah. of solving the problem. And then sort of what are the connections between those things? And I mean, I've dug into a little bit of the background in things like deliberative democracy, where it's about it's about deliberating on something, which is a different a different kind of process. I think it still falls into your conversation sort of spectrum, but it's it's up at that that deep end where you're you're trying to un unpeel the onion, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if we spend, it seems like we spend an awful lot of time on that spectrum. We spend it sort of in the somewhat and less than useful side of it, just as a society and in this kind of a broad generality, why are good conversations so hard and so rare? <laughs> okay, can I be just a teeny bit facetious for a moment, you can, Scott? You betcha. So my, my first, which is not a thoughtful response, but just to you know be humorous for a moment, is um, the thought that first comes to me is, well, thank goodness we haven't figured that out because I'll still be gainfully employed as long <laughs> as we haven't figured out, you know, why why is this so difficult? But you know, that is not thoughtful. So here's here's a crack. Here's a crack at it. I for sure have experienced uh, this isn't something that we actively teach our families, our children, our loved ones. I know that when I think of my family, I'm super, super close with my immediate family. We still spend tons of time together, but we were not good at talking with. You know, we're really good at talking at one another, but we're not necessarily good at talking with one another. And so there's for sure something about it isn't practiced very often. And until for many of us, me included, until I got older and started, oh, there's courses that we can take. There's things that we can learn about this. I think a lot of times it's just not practiced and it is a, it's a practice and a skill and a set of behaviors. Like I think there's a combination. The other thing that I suspect is contributing to why, you know, our good, you know, air quotes conversation so tough. Again, you can't see me, but I'm holding up my smartphone right now. And, you know, we're in this day and age right now of every day, I swear I could open up my device, find a new way to communicate. And yet all the science, all the research out there says that we are feeling more disconnected than ever before. And I find that to also be contributing to the you know, lack of our ability to get into some of this, you know, one end of the spectrum discussion is that we have these devices, but we don't always use them in ways that sort of deepen or richen our relationships that we have or future relationships. So there's heaps of, I'm sure, other things that contribute it to, but those are two things that pop up for me. So our technology is actually training us the opposite of the way we should be. Well, And probably all, I mean, this is back to like 
purpose. Like I think um, how we want to converse should be directly connected to the type of relationship that we want to have with that person or with that organization. So if relationship or connection or shared goals are really important to you or important to the situation, well, then, you know, it probably would serve you well to use a certain type of discussion. I also think though, just to, you know, play devil's advocate, I can think of Scott, a couple of situations where I went, you know what, while I could probably practice more good conversation, I got to set some boundaries. And I, like, I actually need to walk away from this relationship and this conversation. So I'm hesitant to sort of, you know, I'm, I'm always nervous about good or bad, mm. more just thinking about what are you, what are you trying to serve? What are you trying to get out of this? What part of the relationship or what type of relationship is important? And now thoughtfully think about, well, then how are you going to interact? How are you right. going to converse? The the phrase fit for purpose sort of comes, pops into my head when you mention that. And and then also the this idea that depending on the relationship, and even the moment in that relationship sort of depends on where you are in that, that whole spectrum, right? So you can go from silly, goofy, disparaging, sarcastic, you know, all the way up to deep and meaningful. Yeah. And it takes a lot of effort for that top end of the spectrum too. Right. Is that sort of your experience? Well, and so the, I think I shared, and I'll see if I can be a shorter and more concise. I had said at very opening, I had two stories that yeah. when I think about, when I think about my work and here seems to be the right time to just tell a mini version of the second one. I think one of the other, you asked me the question, what sort of gets in the way of these, you know, sort of deeper resonant conversations I'm going to broad brush here, Scott. So listeners humor me here while I broad brush. When you sort of look at North American Western culture, there's a, there's a large portion of it that goes, don't be vulnerable. Don't show weakness. Don't, you know, like we need to be put together and well thought out and our PowerPoint slides are perfect. And, you know, we sort of have that perfection is a huge part of, you know, sort of certainly our professional world, but, you know, kind of in our culture in general. And so I've been finding vulnerability and what does it look like to fail, fail in front of other people, step into that conversation and then come out the other side has a huge impact on your ability to sort of lean in to that, again, that one side of the spectrum where we're having those deep conversations that make change, that create connection. And so the quick story that I'll tell about it was, oh gosh, it's a little hard to say out loud, Scott, but here I go. Yeah. Uh, I was delivering a training session uh, with a, a group of a family and community services group. I had long wanted to work for this group. I admired their work. I thought they were putting amazing stuff out into the world, like making good change in this community. So they hired me to come deliver this one five-day training course that I teach. And so on day two of the training course, there was um, a really tragic incident that had happened in the community about six months earlier. And this incident kept sort of coming in to our training discussion and to some extent was a bit distracting of the training. Like it, you know, it kind of kept popping up and taking us into different places and people were kind of looking uncomfortable with it. And so like any good facilitator, I went, well, 
clearly there's something here to talk about. So let's like, let's, you know, create the space, put it on the table. There were some steps I missed, Scott, in how to effectively, thoughtfully put it on the table in a way that would serve everyone. I will not get into the sordid details, but it didn't go well. <laughs> I put people into this space. There were tears. People ran out of the room. Some people were incredibly angry that I even brought it up. Like it went, it went from this like perfect, what I thought was going to be this great, impactful discussion to seven minutes later deteriorating into, oh my gosh, I've done harm in this situation. Like I've made it worse than it was before. Fast forward 48 hours, I had had to have a discussion with the person who was leading, who I was connecting, leading the training with. And we sort of did the, we need to do something about this. Scott, I went and did all my Brene Brown reading, all of my like, (laughs) how do you step into the arena to use her words? How do you show up? You know, what does it look like to be, not make this about me, but offer a thoughtful apology for what had been done. And because I think you can apologize for things and then you need to take accountability for everything else or own up to every, and they're different. Like an apology and owning up to something are two different things in a conversation. I was surprised about what happened afterwards. I sort of walked in that day. I offered my apology I offered very little explanation, like I offered a little bit, but it almost didn't matter why at this point in time. We just needed to talk about it. And then I sort of opened it up and said, okay, group, like we need to, you know, have some air clearing time. And so I'm going to open it up to everyone in the room to sort of ask questions, say the things that you need to say. It was the hardest 25 minutes of my career, arguably the hardest space I've ever had to stand in. Like, Kim, how dare you? (laughs) do that. That wasn't your place. I had to relive, you know, so all of those, those things. There were other people though, that said, actually, I needed that. Like that was, I've been waiting for an opportunity to talk about that a really long time. And so at the very end of it, why I tell this story was of the 25 people that were in the room, there were, you know, people in all different segments, people who were really angry, people who were really happy, and then obviously everything in between. But what really stood out for me and why I think we now continue to have a really deep, strong, successful relationship was I. one of the participants came up to me and said, Kim, I thought you were going to shove that under the rug. I thought you were going to hide it under the table and we weren't ever going to talk about it. And so I just have to tell you, I'm, you know, I still don't love everything that happened, but I'm so grateful that we had the opportunity to, you know, just get it out in the open and talk about how we were impacted. And so I continue, you know, to sort of, you know, do work and be in a relationship with them. But I think had I not sort of been willing to step into that really vulnerable, you know, I still, my tummy curls every time I think about it. I don't know if our relationship would have got there. I think it would have just fizzled afterwards and I wouldn't have served anyone well. Do you think that your I guess, willingness to step in, in that space created something for the participants? Like it, it was a way of in the most tactical sense, it was a way of dealing with the, the situation and following through. So there was that. What I'm curious about is in the sharing of the stories, 
regardless of where people were on the spectrum, I have this idea that that helped everybody, regardless of where they were. Mm -hmm. And I'll offer sort of my assessment, but then I also... I tried to, as people were coming to me and I had, you know, took a few, I actually wrote like, so what did people come back with? Because I think the people who are in the room were the best to assess, did my choice to step into vulnerability, you know, sort of how did it land with them? Only they can tell, tell that, Uh, you know, I would say the breakdown was of the 25 people, six came and gave me the biggest, most giant hug ever. And they were like, thank you so much. This is exactly what we needed. I feel like the air is clear. I so appreciate it. I had a couple, I probably had about seven or eight, maybe 10-ish. Other people came up and went, you know, that was a good idea. Good, like really glad that we chose to do that. That was, you know, sort of what we what we needed. And then Scott, I'm terrible at math. Whatever's left, the other sort of seven to nine-ish people um, that were left didn't say anything at all. And so who knows whether they went, oh gosh, did she ever make a big deal out of that? Like that wasn't necessary. Or were they, you know, maybe still just internalizing? I actually can't speak for sort of, you know, where they were at. My sense though, was that after that, we sort of had about 30 minutes of kind of, you know, a little awkward, like a little, like I had to sort of pull myself together and, you know, carry on with the day. But we had another five days of training afterwards that went famously well and got really successful evaluations afterwards. So again, if I'm just trying to look at the data, both what people said, what I felt and, you know, what was written down, I think we rebuilt a bridge that had potentially been damaged. Right. The two examples that you've been giving or that you've given are in the room kinds of things. And of course, we've been going through this pandemic yo-yo now for what 150 years, I think. That's what it feels like sometimes. It feels like it. I'm curious, how do you how do you make this bridge to the virtual world? Or can can we even make that bridge? What goes on in the virtual versus in person that you know we can we can use here to to make better conversations? Okay, so this is the question of the hour, Scott. Like what you're asking when I look at um, my personal world, when I look at my professional world, you know, this is the can I continue to create meaningful experiences? Can I continue to build long-lasting relationships without and I don't think it'll be forever, but prolonged virtual interaction. And I have mixed reviews. I have certainly, I've been very grateful that all of my work has transitioned into the online space. And it has been a, an amazing journey, a like awesome learning curve as far as all that stuff that I used to do in person, can we do it virtually? And here's where it comes down to. I think, and I'm going to be so bold as to put a percentage, and then I put a footnote on the bottom that I reserve the right to change my mind if I learn something new in this practice. So a meaningless percentage, got it. A meaningless percentage, yes. But for the moment, it strikes me that 80-85% of the experience, the outputs, the you know, both the feeling and the stuff can be recreated in a virtual reality. But there is this 15, 20%-ish that just can't be recreated in a virtual environment. Even with 
the slickest tech, even with you know the all of these different invitations and these tools to do things differently, I, I do believe that we can't get rid of thousands, millions of years of history. People are social creatures by nature. I think that there is at least some of that in each of us. That is so hard to replace in the virtual environment. So that's my semi-bold statement, Scott. <laughs> Have you had really sort of fantastic successes in the virtual world? Like what's, a, what, what's an example of something that you kind of thought wasn't going to work in virtual yeah. that did? Mm-hmm. Yes. And then, and then I'll tell the flip side of what I thought would be super easy in virtual and, you know, like, and, and didn't. So I was hosting a session for a provincial power organization and they were looking at, you know, we need to start making some decisions about how we're going to power our province going forward. And, you know, what we're doing today is not realistic with, you know, the desire to reduce greenhouse gases and new impacts on climate change and new technology, et cetera, et cetera. So they wanted to host a, you know, sort of province-wide discussion on, on this. It's pretty contentious, you know, sort of what we're talking about climate change, you know, just climate change all in itself sort of brings up, you know, a lot of angst. We're also talking about nuclear power in this situation. And nuclear power definitely has a lot of, you know, in some cases, fear and anxiety that sit sit around it. And so I was really nervous, like, gosh, how are we going to have? And the first session we had was we had more than 100 people sign up to this two hour you know, sort of deliberative deliberative discussion. It was phenomenal. These people came, they gave their best, they were willing to you know, sort of move into smaller discussion and come back to large discussion. Uh, I think we set up a lot of there was lots of groundwork laid into, you know, how are we going to bring these people together? I was just really impressed, though, at people's willingness to interact thoughtfully, both with microphone, but also in the chat, because that chat's a dangerous place in the virtual world. And it was um, incredible, actually, at um, this group of people and multiple groups after them and the amount of data and insight that came out of it and yeah. relationships that were built as a result. I'll jump in with a thought because I've had two experiences in the last uh, few months around virtual that I thought were just spectacularly well done, but they highlight some of the things you are talking about, which is the structure that can come into a virtual engagement that you, you, know, you and I as facilitators and engagement people have to sort of think about and moving people kind of quickly from in the room to out of the room to in the room to out of the room and Reflecting that feedback more broadly, the Black Gold School District did a, a visioning, essentially a visioning session with 200 and some odd people, but they had all of their principals facilitating the breakouts and capturing notes. And it was really, really well done to the point where people were commenting in the chat again mm -hmm. about how good the breakouts were. And then, of course, I've run my own project where we kind of went down that road as well, but it's interesting the little things that people will twig on in a virtual world that make them feel like, oh, this, this isn't a normal virtual. Like we would call them icebreaker questions, but just the get to know you questions. Yeah. And I have to say the most popular question was, what was your first car? 
interesting. We could have had the entire session on just that. We could have never gotten to the topic, but we had people talking about their car and you know the stories behind it and people from all across the province got to know one another. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think just to name that, I mean, a lot of times if you haven't had the opportunity to see and experience, icebreakers are seen as like, okay, it's just like this painful game <laughs> that we have to play. And yet my experience and probably yours too, Scott, a well-placed, let's get started exercise, all of a sudden creates those mini, you know, it's like the first couple steps of the footbridge so that, you know, later when people disagree, like I think of, you know, we had in that conversation I talked about earlier, we had people who were like, yes, nuclear, like this is like technology has changed. This is a thing we need to consider. And other people who are like, I am nuclear, what? Like, this is an awful idea. But I saw people in those sessions because of some of the earlier work done, not walk away all huggy and like, oh, perfect. We agree on everything. They didn't necessarily find agreement, but they did find alignment. Yeah. And that I think is when we're looking at collaboration or when we're looking at solving society's toughest problems, like how do we power our future? Alignment is going to be pretty key in finding solutions that work. Well, and it also builds a level of respect into that discussion as well, right? So it's created an ability for a person who's sitting across from you with a different view to be a human with a different view, not an opponent. Yes. Yeah. So in the in the future, the future that's that's coming after this pandemic, where we may be doing virtual or we may be doing in person, would you be seeing you know opportunities for hybrid events or events where we're doing kind of both together? Like I'm sort of suspecting school might go to that kind of a model at some point. Mm-hmm. I so certainly already organizations. I'm planning a couple of them this fall where they're saying, you know, Kim, we don't know what the future holds. Can we plan for some people to be in the room and some people to be online? I certainly think all of us who work in this holding, you know, creators of conversation, I think we would be remiss if we didn't start turning our attention to how are we going, like, how are we going to do that? And I think it was, I actually hosted a a session, we had a bunch of practitioners from all across the country come on together. And we were brainstorming this idea of hybrid. And I really appreciated uh, one of the, she's long-term practitioner, her name's Anne Carroll, she's based out of the US. And she said, you know, Kim, I love this discussion, but I just want to pause for a moment. Let's just make sure we aren't working on the assumption that hybrid is going to be the best of two. And I think it's actually important to put a pause and go, all right, so what would in-person look like and what would it serve and how would we do it? What would totally virtual look like? Again, what would it serve? How would we do it? And then and then also consider, you know, sort of that hybrid. And I think there's a few variations in the hybrid model. Uh, but let's not just assume that bringing them together will be better. It might be, but it's going to be dependent on what you're trying to achieve. Back to that form and function thought. Right. So I want to switch gears in the last little bit of the of our conversation. And I'm kind of curious sort of how you got to here. So what's the track through your the arc of your life that has gotten you to this point? And would you have predicted that this is where you would be when you were a teenager? No, such a good question. I'm smiling. You can't see me smiling away, but uh, well, we can hear I... <laughs> 
I appreciate the reflection back. So my short answer, and then I'll expand a bit. No, I would have never thought that I was going to be here. And yet I always knew, always knew I loved people. And I always believed in the power of people. I I really think that too often we underestimate ourselves and we underestimate others around us and our ability to find connection or create new ideas or, you know, like, is there ever a new idea? I don't know, but we take, you know, stuff that's out there before and we polish it up and we, you know, reimagine it for a current state. That's always something that I've held true or that's always something that's held true for me. And so I know when I was looking, when I was making career choices, that that needed to come out somewhere. So, I mean, the short story is I went and got a political science major at the uh, University of Alberta because I believe that liberal arts, certainly at the time when I was in school, is like, oh, you're not in business. Like, why wouldn't you go into, you know, why wouldn't you get your BCom? Being able to think being able to reflect, being able to analyze and put together disparate thoughts, I think serves, you know, in the industry and the society that we're in right now serves us well. I did my fair share, Scott, of random (laughs) jobs, you know, started off at Petro Canada working as a reconciliation analyst. You heard me try to do math earlier. It was not (laughs) the right fit for me. And yet I had a mentor who sort of saw that I also, part of my job was with driver safety training. I used to have to work with these, you know, truck drivers who came in and they needed safety training. And I created unexpectedly this whole culture network sort of advisory group. And I had a mentor who was like, huh, she kind of has a thing there that we could probably take and put other places, which, you know, then took me into a stakeholder advisory role, and then later took me into, um, I got to work for an environmental consulting firm. I have walked pipelines and traditional territories in all sorts of Western Canada, which I feel privileged to have experienced all of that, and then brought me to Dialogue Partners, where I am today. So an unexpected path, and yet I'm so grateful for all of the different parts of it. Is there someone that you would point to as being particularly influential in your background? Yeah, I think that there's a couple. Certainly the person, his name's Morley Middlestead. And he was my, I'll call it my first real boss, if we want to call it call it that, uh, at Petro Canada. And he for sure was the person who taught me about You know, sometimes, Kim, you just need to like, you really want to like jump to the thing that we got to like dive into. He taught me the art of establishing conversation rapport before you get into the tough stuff. Once upon a time, I thought it was fluffy and it's not actually. He had such an art about doing that and he demonstrated it regularly. So that was something that I will always, always be grateful for. There was another person, his name was Paul Anderson, and I worked with him at a company that was then known as Terra Environmental Consulting. Paul had this easygoing nature. He took me to all sorts of uh, First Nation and Indigenous uh, communities when we were working with community members on traditional land use studies or traditional ecological knowledge studies. And he just had a way of making everybody feel comfortable and every 
piece that they offered was so valuable and so important. And it was genuine every time he delivered it. And I have often thought about him and tried to model what I saw him do with other people. And then last but not least, I couldn't not, uh, our Dialogue Partners founder, Stephanie Ray McCallum, uh, was a huge influence. I remember the first time I met her and worked with her, I went, can I do what you do? Like that just <laughs> seems like the most, like got to take all my favorite things, all my best skills and put them together. And so certainly there are many others that I should probably mention too, but those are the definitely three people who made a huge difference for me. You mean you don't, you don't have a ready list, like you're you know about to accept an Emmy award or anything like that? Come on. <laughs> no, I don't. No, I don't. Well, you know, I'm familiar with Steph having uh, had her on the podcast. She was actually the very first yeah. guest of the podcast. Ah, yes. And such deep insights. And, and I, what I think is interesting is how we take different lessons from different people, sort of depending on where we are in the, to use that term again, the arc of our life. Mm-hmm. My last question for you today is one that I always ask, and it's around books. I'm always curious about the books that people are reading, and I will ask, you know, is there a book that you would, that you either typically give as a gift or that you would normally recommend to people, or maybe it's just a book you're reading right now that's really caught your attention? Is there any, any book or books you'd like to, to mention? Well, I'm going to give, I'm going to give a book, but I'm going to give an observation exercise as well, because I'll be super, super honest, Scott, I read some books, um, but I would say I'm actually, I'm a very avid reader, but I'm a very avid fiction reader. I don't actually read a ton, ton, ton. I listen to a lot of podcasts and, you know, do, do some of those kinds of things. So on the book front though, Crucial Conversations, of course, the author is going to entirely skate me right now, but it's easy, super easy to find on Google. If you're somebody who cares about how you're talking and interacting with people, Crucial Conversations is one of the books that you that you need to read. Oh, and maybe I'll throw in another one in there. Anyone who's taken any negotiation mediation training should read or uh, Getting to Yes. And then I think there's another one, Getting to No or Getting Past No or something, something like that foundational, you can't, like, you just got to read them at some, at some point in time. But then here's what I would, I'd like to offer, though, in addition to those books, is the next time you get the opportunity, I want you, I would invite people to pick two different conversational situations, a professional one and a personal one. So the next time you're at a meeting, I want you to just sort of see if you can take yourself actually out of the meeting content and just look at the meeting process. What's happening? Who's participating? Who's not participating? Like just sort of take yourself out of the every part of it and just kind of look at it. And then I want you to do the exact same exercise at a social gathering again, that's COVID friendly and you've done all of the, you know, done all the right things. And then I want you to compare and contrast, like what's happening in both, what's working, what's not working and what can we learn? I think there's a ton to learn from kitchen parties. There is so many great things that happen, you know, like when you think of lots of social gatherings that 
We stand in circles. There's a reason why circles work so well for tough topics. Sort of, you know, how the inter, it's not always one big group. It often ebbs and flows between smaller groups and bigger groups. So I invite people to read some books and do some observation. Like what can you see that you might be able to take with you to your next conversation? You know, that seems like uh, something we can put out to anybody who listens to the podcast to maybe leave some comments, yeah. provide a little bit of feedback on what they've observed and let's share amongst the people who are listening. So thank you for those two suggestions and for sort of the take home, the homework that we can take home with us. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to sort of talk through a little bit about conversations and collaboration and some of your thoughts on the world of engagement and how things are moving in the virtual, not virtual arenas at this point. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. I always enjoy speaking with Kim, and I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. When we talked about the spectrum of conversation, I really enjoyed Kim's description of the connection between the depth of the conversation and the purpose of that conversation. Mostly because it reminded me that conversations do have a purpose, or at least they should be approached purposefully. But it also made me think about how subtle nuances of human communications, both verbal and nonverbal, would really add complexity to this idea of a spectrum, and how those little nuances might show up in that spectrum. I also really appreciate Kim's willingness to share her story of her misstep, and how she reacted to it, and how it's allowed her to grow as a professional and as a person. It would have been really hard to do what she did, to step back into the space and to reopen the conversation. I'm not sure what I would have done faced with that situation, but I can certainly imagine the allure of sweeping it under the rug, doing whatever it took to get the attention onto something, anything else. It certainly speaks to Kim's character that she was willing to turn back and step back into the arena. If you enjoyed my conversation with Kim today, please think of a few friends who you think would like to listen in as well. Tell them about the episode. Tell them about the show. And if they're new to podcasting, please help them follow us. Until the next time, happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.